Good morning. Welcome to Keeping It Real. I'm Gilly Sowers. Today I am coming to you from my new apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm recording in my guest room slash office and I'm hoping that the noise is at a minimum. There's some construction going on on the building and it's kind of noisy. But anyway, I want to thank those of you who reached out to me yesterday and this morning with messages of love and support. I appreciate it so much. And to be honest, I was so nerve-wracked after releasing that first episode um, that I can't bear to listen to it because all I hear are the screw-ups and the shaky voice and the talking too fast from the nerves and um, you know, we're our own worst critics. But I am so grateful to those of you who appreciated my rawness and my realness. Um, and if you will stick around with me for a while, the nerves are calming. The stories will come. And I'm hoping that you get something from this. So I come to you sitting in my desk chair with my cup of coffee and my vape pen. And I want to get real with you today. I'm very raw this morning. Feeling very vulnerable and questioning so much about myself and my choices and my thought process and I know that every woman everybody but especially as women we face this so often so I don't know how familiar you all are about attachment theories and relationships it's something that I've learned a great deal about in my own healing that I have done in the therapy that I have done over the last year and quite honestly although I have spent some time on betterhelp.com and actually paid for therapy I have found the most healing through the podcast that I've listened to and that's what brought me to you because the podcast that I got the most help from are from those who are like me, who have lived life, who have suffered great loss and great pain and somehow been able to rise and help others. And that's what my hope is for you. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. Um, I know that I'm gonna face some ridicule in sharing my story. And I've given a great deal of thought to how can I be honest and keep it real and still be kind and still not hurt others whose stories might cross over onto mine. And I know that ultimately there are going to be times where I cannot. My goal is never to hurt anyone. But sometimes things come out 
that cause pain and I'm gonna have to bear that burden I guess to be honest and real so I don't know what to do but just to kind of start at the beginning so attachment theory was formed by a study that was done many many years ago on babies they would put babies in a room with their mama and they would take the mama out of the room and the anxiously attached babies would be the ones who would be overcome with separation anxiety and then cling to their parent when they returned. The avoidance were the ones who seemingly didn't care that much when their parent left but they also were standoffish to the parent when they returned out of self-preservation I suppose securely attached babies were the ones who could function well with their parent gone and then they could function well when their parent returned You can find better resources than that on the explanation of attachment theory. There are so many podcasts and books and research. And I have the joy of being what is called a disorganized attacher, which is a combination of anxious and avoidant. That means... As an anxious attacher, I will completely lose myself in trying to prove my love and worth to someone so that they won't abandon me. But as the avoidant, I also will push them away when I become scared. It's the whole survival mechanism of, I know you're going to abandon me and you're going to hurt me, so I will push you away first so that I can be in control of that. It's a little bit of a hell to live in. Let me tell you how it was created. Probably the first memory that I have as a child is when I was five, sitting cross-legged on the bed with my sister while my parents told us that they were getting divorced. Now that is not a unique story. I'm sure there are many of you out there that can relate to that. But that was the beginning, I feel, of where this came from, this sense of abandonment and chaos. What ensued after that was an upbringing in chaos and dysfunction. My dad moved away. He remarried pretty quickly to a woman who was an alcoholic and could be quite abusive and abrasive to my sister and I. My mom also remarried fairly quickly to a man from another country and another culture where children were tolerated, I suppose, In this culture, divorce was unheard of. 
do you know where I got this information? I was told my whole life by my mother that this land he came from, divorce was unheard of. Women basically had no rights, and if there ever was a divorce, the woman never kept the kids. And the fact that he tolerated us was a gift. This is how I grew up. Now, I've spent the better part of my life blaming my mom for that. You know, having hatred about certain things that had happened in my life. But I also know that she was just trying to figure it out herself. She was dealing with her own traumas and her own wounds. And I can look at her with compassion now in knowing that. But on the best days, we were tolerated. On the worst, we were mistreated. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail on things. I just... It was very chaotic. My mother had a drinking problem of her own in those days. I believe she's been sober since I was 16, so I'm so proud of her for that. But mom obviously is codependent in her own ways with this stepfather. And he has mental illness and he's bipolar. And that brought with it a whole new dynamic on top of the cultural differences. He could be so much fun, but yet he would always cross a line where it wasn't fun anymore. And it and he was prone to violent outbursts and rages. And no wonder my mom drank. <clears throat> anyway, so... My sister and I were bounced back and forth every other weekend to my dad's with the stepmom. And what we came home to was usually a Sunday evening screaming match between my mom and dad in the kitchen, fighting over money or child support or what they let us do, what he let us do. This is how I grew up. I think this was the beginning of me trying to be a people pleaser. Just always trying to keep the peace. And I bounced back and forth between this nurturing, loving little mama. Always trying to keep the peace and make everybody happy. Two later, when I got a little older, um, a big rebellious streak came out of me. My sister um, dealt with things in her own way. She became the perfectionist. She was always cleaning and trying to make everything perfect so that no one would have a reason to complain or lash out. I was sloppy. Anybody that knows me now and sees how I keep house would be a bit shocked about that. But I was sloppy. I had a messy bedroom, 
messy hair. I was a little wild child who ran around in the woods that I grew up in. That was my safe haven. I became an empath, no doubt, as a result of the chaos and the emotional dysregulation that I was raised in. The woods was my haven and I would go there and I would sit and play for hours and hours connecting with nature and animals and that is where I found my peace. That is still where I find my peace is in nature and I do have a connection with animals and small children and broken people it would seem. My friend Melly and I call this the nurse curse. We're both nurses, of course, but it's the fixer. And so it was also the beginning of that attraction to brokenness. When you come from chaos, and that is all you know, anything else just feels strange. You know? And so the breadcrumbing that we crave, the little snippets of attention and love, or attention that we mistake for love, that's where that comes from, is that childhood. You know, you do the best you can to kind of hunker down and stay out of the way when that doesn't work. You rebel, I suppose. Create the chaos. Get the blow-ups over with because then the good time comes after that. When I got old enough to leave the woods and to leave my yard, I started branching out. There was this old man that lived down the street and he had a great big yard. He lived in a little shack, but he had a great big yard. And a lot of us kids would go there and play ball or frisbee or whatever in the yard. I developed such a sweet spot for that little old man. He had just lost his wife, I'm sorry, not his wife, his daughter. And grandson died tragically in a drowning in the river. The little boy had fallen in. And she couldn't swim, but she jumped in to save him, and they both drowned. And that broke my heart. I felt that to the core of my being, and I felt so much love and empathy for this sweet old man. I remember one day after school, I came home. I'd worried about him all day at school. I don't remember exactly why. He'd been a bit under the weather or something. And I rushed home after school and I made cookies and I remember making a pitcher of lemonade. And when I got it all made, I walked up the road to his house and I took it to him. And I was so proud of myself and I felt like I was being sweet and I wanted to uplift him. And I took it into him and I presented it and he ate a cookie and drank some lemonade and this dark, dungy little shack. This visit was different. I got up to go and 
He got up and he put his arms around me to hug me goodbye. Except this hug was different. And he had me in a tight grip and it felt so wrong and scary. And I will never forget the stench of the pipe tobacco coming from his mouth when he pressed his lips on mine and then he whispered in my ear and I can still feel the damp heat from his mouth on my ear when he said to me if you be good to me then I'll be good to you somehow everything within me rose up the hurt, the betrayal, the rage rose up in me and I broke free from him and I ran out of the house and down the street to go home. I ran into my house and I told my mom what happened. And she told me to never, ever go back there again. To never go back there again. But she also told me not to ever say a word of this to anybody. Don't you ever tell anybody what happened. I don't know what her thought process was about that through the years I've tried to talk to her about it or to ask where she was coming from she probably in her own way thought that she was protecting me from ridicule and protecting the family from the shame but the message that my maybe 10 year old self got was that I was wrong and I should feel ashamed And what I want to say to that sweet little girl is, honey, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm sorry that the grown-ups didn't know how to deal with that. I'm sorry that no one fought for you. Because the fear that I have had in my heart from that day is how could it have changed How many other kids could have been spared what happened to them had somebody done something when it happened to me? I don't know that he ever inappropriately touched anybody else. I don't have any evidence to that. But I think about all the kids who went in and out of that place. I think about the way that he lured us by acting like a sweet grandpa. And then now that I can see the family lineage that came from him and the stories that I've heard about the subsequent generations of that family, 
It tells me that there was abuse not only outside of his family, but within. I'm so proud of the little girl that I was for fighting and breaking free and not cowering. And I think that that's why it's so important to me now to tell my story, to share my story so that I can help somehow help somebody. Because I'm not a little girl that you can say, don't you ever tell anybody what happened. You have no control on me anymore. Nobody does. Nobody has control. I have control. And I was too little to fight for my little self then, but I am not too little to fight for me now. So, fast forward a couple of years, and I branched a little further down the street. <laughs> and I found a family that probably saved me and also created, to some extent, a great part of who I am. I discovered my love of music and the ability that I had to sing when I went there. The dad had a band, an old country band, and they'd get together once a week and play in their back music building. And then subsequently, the son, who was a year older than me, he had been raised around music his whole life. He was very talented and So not only did I go down once a week and sing with the old guys, but the kids, we started our own band and that became such a way of life for me. I found a release and a new way of people pleasing, quite frankly. I was good and everybody said I was good and the tension and the praise that I got from that was something that I never got any other way even my mom would you know I remember the first recording that my mom and stepdad made of me when I was singing as a little girl and several years earlier it was Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind I don't remember if it was acapella or maybe a friend of my stepdad's was playing the guitar and they recorded it on a cassette. And I remember my mom taking it out to my aunts and playing it for her and saying, listen to this. It was good. It was really good. So I developed this, not only this, not only did I have the woods as my escape, I now had music. And as a result, by the time I was 13, I was singing with the band in the bars. I didn't want to be at home. And I had such love for this family and the whole attention, you know? I got attention I had never known from any other outlet 
You know, I wrote a song several years ago. My God, probably 20 years ago. It's called Honky Tonk Girl. And the first line of the song says, Singing in the bars by the age of 13, there's not much of life that I hadn't seen growing up on a stage surrounded by smoke rings and beer. And ain't that the truth? This is where my rebel stage comes in, I suppose. My misguided longing for love and affection and attention made me prime for people who didn't necessarily have my best interests at heart. I was drinking hard. So young. I could walk up to the bar of this local club where we played and I remember being just a young teenager and being served Jim Beam and Squirt. I don't know where I got the idea for Jim Beam and Squirt. Obviously somebody that I looked up to, that was their poison and that's what I started drinking. I was smoking cigarettes and I was being crazy with boys and quite frankly with men who were much older than me and had no business messing with somebody my age. was crazy it was chaos and then when I was in high school this life continued my grades fell and when I was 16 years old I came home from school one day and my mom told me that I was moving out. Now keep in mind that although I was living this crazy lifestyle, I'm not sure how onto it she was because she was drunken in bed most nights. She was glad to have me out of the house. She probably thought I was in good hands. And in many ways I was. I mean, this family cared about me. They watched out for me. It was its own dysfunctional family and I adore them to this day. But they allowed the behaviors that came with the lifestyle. And, you know, I would get drunk at the bar out singing and then we'd go back to their house and they'd pour coffee in me for a couple hours, feed me and send me home. Mom was already in bed. I don't think that she knew. Maybe she did. Maybe she knew and she didn't care. It's not my place to judge or to presume what she was thinking. But anyway, so I, at age 16, was told by my mother that I was going to be moving out of the home. It was the summer between my junior and senior year. Mom owned an apartment building. She told me that me being there at this stage of the life that I was in, where I had friends that would come once in a while, or I had a boyfriend who would come over, that this was an intrusion on her privacy with my stepfather. That I would be moving into the apartment building And my dad's child support would be paying the rent, but that I would be expected to pay for my own things besides that. 
And I remember such a feeling of betrayal and not good enough. And I just remember wondering what the hell I had done that was such a horrible thing that they would remove me from the home. And it wasn't that I wanted to be there. How many screaming matches my sister and I had had with my mom and my stepdad. I remember us saying, this is not a home. We don't feel at home here. I had felt unwelcome in that home since I was five years old. But still to be told at age 16 that I had to leave because I was an invasion of their privacy. When mom tells that story now, she makes it sound like I was out of control and a crazy wild teen that she had no idea what to do with. And perhaps that's true. Because I had this double life, you know? I would sing with the band. But I also was a junior in high school with a boyfriend who was a nice, clean-cut guy. And he he worked for my stepdad. And they liked him. And I remember date nights. Friday night, my curfew was 10.30 and Saturday night was 11. And I don't remember being out past that, you know? I don't know. Anyway... So I moved into this apartment um, when I was 16. And you think singing in a band opened me up to a whole new world. Try being the only senior in high school with their own apartment. Huh. But mom still tried to have control, you know. It was, you're living on your own and you're going to pay your own bills, but you're still going to be home by midnight. And you're still going to do this. And you're still going to do that. So I had gotten my nurse's assistant uh, certificate when I was a junior. And that summer I had started working at the nursing home. And my senior year of high school, I continued working night shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. at the nursing home as a CNA all while trying to go to school. I would work all night. I would go home and shower, change, go to school. I don't know how I did it, but I did. I didn't do it very pretty. I remember, um, I remember the first chance I got moving out of my parents apartment building and into a different apartment in town. The rent would be more, but I found a friend who wanted to move in with me. Her parents had agreed to let her move in with me, and once I got out from my mother's thumb, whew, that apartment was the hangout. I'm sorry, excuse the hammering. They're working upstairs. (laughs) That apartment was the hangout. And so the only senior in high school with her own apartment, a rebellious streak, and already headed down a wild path, you can only imagine the turns that took from there. I was out of control. 
out of control. But somehow, I managed to graduate from high school. Right before graduation, my friend wrecked her Corvette, and obviously her parents had seen probably, uh, in all honesty, that this was not the situation they thought their daughter was going to be in, living in my apartment. (laughs) And so they told her that they would get her a new car and they would pay for her to go to college, but she had to move back home. And so she did, and you can't blame her. It's probably the smartest thing she ever did. But what it opened me up to is my first marriage. I had just started dating someone new because rebellious Gilly had already become bored with the sweet, nice boy that my parents liked that I had actually gotten engaged to as a junior in high school before I was thrown out of the house. And I latched onto this big bad boy. (laughs) He was good looking and tall and strong and he was crazy about me. He was my biggest fan. He would drive around town blaring my tapes for all to hear. He had a jealous streak a mile long and he was possessive. And my broken little girl read that as, boy, he must really love me or he would not be so jealous. He must really treasure me or he would not behave that way. All I need to do is just let him, let him love me and love him back. And I was 17, and because my roommate had moved out, he moved in, and we were soon married, and I was soon a victim of domestic violence, because what started as jealousy and possessiveness and controlling turned into abuse, and I remember just letting myself go. I don't know how much weight I gained. I wouldn't do my hair or my makeup anymore. I was forbidden to sing with the band anymore and I completely let him take control of me. And people always ask, why? Why? How did you get in that situation and why would you dare let somebody do that to you? It doesn't come out of the gate all at once, y'all. It starts with little bits, you know? It's the love bombing in the beginning and they love you so much and they're gonna protect you and you're so starved for affection and what seems like some normal because all you've been is rejected your whole life. And he didn't reject me, he loved me, he wanted me. And then they start with the criticisms and they start breaking you down. And then the first time they hit you, they're so sorry. And you know, 
the abuse is horrible, but the love bombing after when everything feels right in the world again and the promise that they'll never do it again. And, you know, if you would only do this, then I wouldn't have to do this. Now, I will say that the abuse that I suffered in my first marriage was much more emotional and much less physical. There was physical violence. There was more controlling, manipulating, threatening. I got smacked around a few times, but it was more shaking or shoving. But it was the mind manipulation that is the worst. You know, because bruises heal. But that doesn't ever heal. They break your spirit down to where you do not feel worthy of anything. And since I was a little girl, I wanted to be a mama. I wanted someone to love that would always love me back. And so then the babies came. And with each pregnancy, although he outwardly would act excited about the pregnancy to other people, each pregnancy brought a whole new wave of abuse and mental torture. He tried to bully me into getting an abortion both times. I had already had one miscarriage. I gave birth to my first son when I was 20. I gave birth to my second when I was 22. And at age 23, after finally reaching my breaking point, with two babies, ages one and three, I finally had enough and I left. But the night that I left was the closest I ever felt to terror, to feeling like I was not going to live to see another day. I had the forethought to take my kids to my mom's because I told her I was going to tell him I was leaving. I'm so glad that they weren't there. What would happen over the next several hours was nothing less than mental torture and manipulation. And I stared down the barrel of a loaded shotgun while I cowered behind a love seat in the corner of my living room. I had a hunting knife sharpened under my nose For hours I was told, if I can't have you, no one else can. I was mentally and physically exhausted. And I was finally able to get away by promising him that I wouldn't leave him. I promised him that it was all going to be okay 
but that I needed to go to mom's and get the kids. And I did. I went to mom's and I picked up my kids, but I did not go back. I called my boss, who was the sheriff, and I told him what had happened. And he went down there and basically told my husband that I was not coming back, that he would allow me to gather up some belongings for myself and my kids. And he did, and we left. I got an order of protection, but I would spend the next several months being basically stalked by my ex. I worked at the sheriff's department at the time. I was a dispatcher, and I'm grateful for that because my friends and coworkers watched out for me. I had rented a house out in the country. It was the only place I could find. But we were now six, six miles from town, my boys and I. And I remember sitting in my living room of that house watching TV and looking over at something that caught my eye and seeing my husband's face staring at me through the windows. He was never arrested. I don't know that I ever pressed charges, honestly. I just wanted out. The day I stopped being afraid and I started being pissed off was the day that everything changed. I was at work at the sheriff's office and he came there and asked me would I ride with him to the bank because there were some papers that we needed to sign. And I don't know what ever possessed me to get in that car with him or whatever possessed anybody who was there at work to allow it, but I did. I got in the car. Back in those days, there were no seatbelt laws that I remember because we weren't wearing any. And as we headed out of town from the sheriff's office to go to the next town to the bank, there's a curve, a pretty big curve. And he mashed on the gas and started going really fast on that curve and he reached across me and he opened my car door and he tried to shove me out. And in that split second moment, I was not that broken, abused woman anymore. I turned into that little girl who felt all the rage and betrayal rise up in her and I fought back. I just remember seeing red. I was so angry and for the first time I fought back. And I remember climbing up on my knees in that front seat of that car as he was driving and I started punching him in the fucking face as hard and fast as I could. That was the last day anybody ever laid a hand on me. And as God is my witness, nobody will ever lay a hand on me again. 
And you know what changed that day? That fucking bully lost his edge. And what I know now is that he was just a broken, sad, pathetic man. Because he knew he had no control over me anymore. And everything changed. When I stopped being scared, everything changed. And he knew he could not manipulate me anymore. And the dynamic changed and he didn't stalk me anymore. And he never laid a hand on me anymore. And I will tell you that later in his life, he shed many tears for the way that he treated me. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't perfect. By the end of our marriage, I had made my own mistakes and I own those. But I spent many years as a loving, devoted wife and mom living in a broken marriage where I was manipulated and mistreated. He would pick my paychecks up. At times I would work three jobs and he would go pick up my paychecks. I never saw him. He controlled the money. Back then there were no cell phones. If I went to the grocery store and I was gone longer than he thought I could, should have been, he would call the grocery store and ask for me. And my name would be paged overhead that I had a phone call. And I knew I was going to get it so bad when I got home because I was gone for too long. How on earth did I ever let anybody control me like that? I don't know. I guess I became a badass survivor, you know? I am a survivor and I shared for the very first time I ever shared this story, I was an ER nurse and a woman had been brought in to the ED after being abused by her husband. And she was there because she was having suicidal ideations. And so as a result, we had a staff member sitting with her at all times. And I went in to see my patient, to talk to her, and it was the very first time that I felt the need to share my story. Before that, no one knew anything about that. It was years later by this point, I was remarried and living a completely different life, and I was seen as self-confident and strong, which I was. But I shared my story with her, now what I can tell you, or what I can't tell you, is the effect that it had on her. Wait, I ended my shift and I sent her on her way, whatever. I don't, I don't remember what happened with the patient. I don't know if I ever got through to her. I've told the story many times since and I know that there are some I reached and some I didn't. But this was the first 
time that I ever got feedback from someone and it was months later. That coworker of mine who was sitting there with that woman and heard my story and about how I stopped being scared and I started being angry and I stood up and I fought for myself and I got myself out. She would tell me months later that none of us knew that she was in an abusive relationship at the time and that me telling my story gave her the strength and the voice to stand up and fight for herself and to get herself out of that. Wow. Who knew? How many other people could I have helped or saved if I would have started telling that story years earlier? By the time she told me that story, she had not only ended that first relationship, she was in a new relationship with someone who adored her and she was getting married and she would go on to have a child soon after. Another case of how facing ridicule, facing shame, facing your own demons to tell your own story to help other people. It's worth it every time. I may only reach one, but it's worth it. Tell your truth. You can give voice and strength to someone who does not have it otherwise. Hold space for each other. Thank you for letting me share this first chapter with you. I have so many more chapters to tell, but this is the one, the foundation, it's where it all started. I am sending you all the love and light I have. I'll see you next time on Keeping It Real.